welcome one and all to Picard, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Star Trek universe. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Bonjour, Pete. I'm here. It's okay. Picard, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 108, Broken Pieces, comes to you now via Borg Micro Collective. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. Pete, I guess first thing, let's address most of our speakers in the English language world settling into the reality of coronavirus. So first and foremost, glad that we can all be together, take a little take a little time away from the troubles of the world to talk some Star Trek, to have some fun, to, to set those worries behind. This is the new reality. And as we in a majority of countries are smartly uh, moving to social distancing, to remote working and learning, um, being responsible for one another's public health. So you're only as solid as the the least secure uh, source here. So, you know, maintain that social distancing, uh, three to six feet, be smart, washing your hands. Don't go out if you absolutely do not have to do not travel and the older you are uh hunker down even further help one another out we will get through this together uh if we've learned anything from this wonderful intellectual property of star trek it's that the times that we watch these stories in would not be possible without strife maybe just maybe this is the moment that pushes us further towards that. Indeed, Pete, I'll update what you just said to say, let's remain one to two meters away from each other. That's the <laughs> weirdo Star Trek measuring thing that they have in Star Trek and all the other countries. Um, I know a bit more immediately if we take our, you know, take a look towards uh, Hollywood, etc. cetera. Uh, CBS, of course, shrouded mystery as, you know, in, in terms of when uh, Picard season two uh, would be filming, is it filming, that sort of thing. I don't believe it started filming, but... No, they did not, and um, they're in pre-production. That was confirmed. Um, but all of Hollywood right now, pretty much like everything else, shutting down people uh, wisely, uh, shuttering themselves in. And certainly Star Trek Discovery, of course, had uh, fi- finished ra- filming, yeah. had wrapped filming, one, I think, could tentatively assume, I hope it doesn't sound selfishly assume, but, you know, a lot of that pre-production, pardon me, a lot of that post-production work hopefully could be done from homes and that sort of thing from, from those kind of technical computer-based staff. Uh, and I would even venture to guess, Pete, for Lower Decks, obviously the recordings were done forever ago and that could be done remotely. Uh, I don't know whether the animation is being done in this country or another country. I know Simpsons is done in Asia. Uh, Archer is done in Atlanta. So kind of who knows where the animation is up to versus what needs to be done versus the accessibility to get to the tools you need to do it. But, you know, secondary problems to some of the some of the larger things going on in the world. If anything, the the content that's around and available is going to help us get through this difficult time. Well, with that, let's head into the mission briefing. Amidst an orange nebula, O narrates that their foremothers came to this system looking for an answer to the riddle 
of the Eightfold Stars. What they found was a storehouse of preserved memories that showed them the grim fate of the civilization that perished there long ago. We zoom in on a planet identified as Aia, A-I-A, interesting there, the grief world, where 11 hooded females surround a glowing circle 14 years ago. Indeed, Pete, they're prepping to find the admonition while at the admonition. It's it's on target branding from the the, the the ancient civilization, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, we see O speaking to them. So the narration now having moved on screen. We see Ramda as well. Narissa revealed before too long. Uh, the Jat Vash were created to prevent a second coming of the destroyers. Some will be driven be- uh, mad by the admonition. Some will be stronger. Uh, most Pete af- uh, appear fearful to grab on, but we see that Nerissa does so with gusto, uh, and she processes the flash of information that we that that she receives, even while others are blowing out their brains, tearing off their skin, smashing their heads open, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then the grand plan hinted at now revealed. How will this? potential future be stopped uh, o says on the planet uh, that the humans call mars uh, and we see that ramda has survived as well although she is greatly shaken auntie ramda having ripped her hair out and sometime later on the borg artifact narissa comforts her auntie again after her assimilation a uh, dr kabath We've not met, says there's no medical reason for her to be in this state. Nerissa believes she's faking, but she was never entirely sane to begin with. So just so we're clear, she experienced the admonition, then was assimilated. So obviously the post-traumatic aspect of this is twofold. And she had taken in Nerissa and Narek after... Uh, their parents had died. Question for you, Pete. Did you take Nerissa's uh, uh, words in jest that, that uh, Ramda is, uh, is, is just laying about and that there's no reason? I certainly took it as her kind of, you know, joking with the largely comatose uh, Ramda. But what's your take? I mean, I just don't know that we know Nerissa well enough to, to be able to tell a, a sense of humor. Yeah, there's the the sardonic nature to her delivery. Um, this aspect that she's malingering, that it could be with some form of purpose. I don't know. It's it's definitely a, a theory segment discussion. We do also get just a little bit of expositional recap, which I think is, by the way, you know, I, I wagged my finger last week at all the excuses people had to talk about plans they had or things they did here i think if if let's take it at 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 face value here uh if um nerissa is just kind of sharing with her auntie on some level whether it's you know verbal or just kind of sharing the sound of her voice it's a good time to have some of this expositional recap uh Narek is headed to the synthetic homeworld with more ships being dispatched nerissa will join the fleet though not before cleaning up this house of horrors uh Pete, you might at this point be wondering, where's the kid? Cut to the kid. That's right, Elnor. 
uh, we get some uh, calm traffic confirming that he is in the former director's office. Crew is on the way, uh, and we get a nice uh, a nice fight here that only gets better. Yeah, Centaurian Tarrant, uh, Nerissa's number two here, having uh, let her know that uh, Elnor is out and about. And of course, Elnor has the Fenris Ranger beacon footsteps getting closer. He draws his sword, but it's a flash grenade that temporarily blinds him. He's attacked and bound by three assailants before a shadowy figure blasts one, and then he's able to free himself. It's seven of nine, and she asks where Hugh is and what's happening on the board cube as he hugs her. So, Pete, just to recap for the dude bros who, of course, don't listen to this podcast, but who might be so offended by New Trek bad. Uh, in the first scene, we had a group of women led by a woman there to save the universe, save the galaxy, at least from their perspective. I'm not entirely Team Jot Vosh, but I can appreciate where they're coming from. Uh, the next scene is a female military leader continuing you know, a variety of operations, a variety of points. Uh, and then uh, in the third scene here, Elnor, a capable fighting bro, saved by a lady. Um, gee, I can't quite imagine what the dude bros would be so upset about. They're so fearful. Uh, after the credits, we head to La Serena, where Rios is shaken. Shaken, Pete, as he stares at Soji. We have some of the muffled audio. We have some of the ear-ringing audio. We have him being spoken to repeatedly, barely listening, even as Picard says that Rios, or Rios, as Picard says, needs to secure a link, a uh, communication link to Starfleet Command and laying a course to the nearest base, which is going to be Pete, Deep Space. 12 they're they're so past nine at this point uh indeed they are rios finally steps away and uh he's gonna you know follow through with those commands there but then he's done he pete thank goodness we're gonna get rios uh flashback in this episode flashback of sorts narrative flashback uh, Picard gets a talking to by Raffi. How dare you trust Soji based on her origin being one neuron? You don't know her. Uh, Raffi even pulls a phaser, but that luckily Pete gets quickly put away. Uh, can you give us an update on Agnes? Can I? Can or you? Can, Raffi? <laughs> can you, Pete, who update me on Agnes? I was so worried at the end of the episode. Well, again, it's. It's interesting how they cast this, yet it works. It's the audience knowing most and certain characters knowing uh, certain things. Rafi, fact versus theory. The fact that Gerardi killed Maddox and had a tracking isotope in her blood. The theory that she is a Romulan spy. And it all works with the underlying characterization, particularly throughout this episode, that uh, Raffi's super into conspiracy theories, Matt. Yeah, and this, of course, being an episode that, uh, that confirms many of her theories. Um, By the way, Dude Bro's favorite character now is Raffi. <laughs> uh, because Except of for the fact that they're afraid of her because she has long hair. <laughs> and is female. And, and probably has darker skin and pigment. Is, yeah. And is an interesting character. 
<laughs> there you go. And is uh, imperfect. You know, she she she's not. Uh, well, she's imperfect. Indeed, Pete. Sarcasm aside, imperfect as are we all. Uh, let's head to sick bay where the doctor hologram shares the proof. Again, Pete, this discussion, proof, theory, conjecture, etc. Proof that Agnes killed Maddox. Um, the whole notion of how he was turned off, how there was the the regenerative uh, tools were put away. Picard tries to wave it away. Indeed, Pete, I think there's a little hand-waving going on, literal hand-waving. Still, the proof mounts, and we are reminded, Pete, from all the way back, episode 104, I want to say, 103, that Raffi was not given the opportunity to vet Agnes. Yes. So this intelligence failure indeed laying uh, at the very top of the list here. So what do we know about Soji? What does Soji know about Soji? All good questions. And trust is in short supply on La Serena here. Uh, the EMH explains that Gerardi had injected herself with a hydrogen compound trying to destabilize the viridium tracker in her system. We've seen viridium before. And then uh, they were able to shake their tall Shiar tail after that, or have they? I mean, that that one of the great uh, teases hidden in plain sight, which is to say, Pete, I think we are pretty good at, at, at um, spying Chekhov's guns in most uh, stories. But the idea here that each time that gets name-checked, and it's not often, maybe it's twice maybe three times but it's kind of name checked enough just to be like all right is everybody at home clear no tail this person knows that info these questions are being asked these questions are being answered and it just gets played off as is everybody up to speed and then boom i mean the one of the great hooks at the end of a star trek episode coming up in this one but uh we head to picard's uh study where he's hollow talking with admiral clancy uh Pete, some great dialogue here out of Michael Chaban. Uh, the notion that Clancy thought that Picard was quixotic. Uh, now it is the windmills uh, revealed to be giants. I mean, Pete, I understand the metaphor. I understand the reference. Uh, just a lovely line here. I feel like this episode here, uh, in this scene, and the Picard speech towards the end, it's what you get when you get a novelist who understands television mm -hmm. as opposed to a television writer who might be concerned with some of the larger arcs and reveals and, and games, which are fun. The, 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 the reveals, the hidden things here, he's talking about words. Jabon is, and it's wonderful. Novelist doesn't even sell it accurately. This is a Pulitzer prize winning novelist at that scripting this episode. Um, but uh, Picard wants a squadron. And they argue before Clancy gets him to shut the heck up. She is sending a squadron to rendezvous with them at DS-12. And she orders him to stay there till they get there. On the bridge, Rafi is ready to rub Rios's nose in the truth. But she's uh, just figured out that she's actually talking to Enoch, the E-N-H. That's the N for navigation. Also, Pete, I mean, here we are. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had an Enoch. Might still have an Enoch. I honestly don't quite remember. I think there was some timey-wimey stuff. Um, and Enoch in this. Is this the beginning of the great Star Trek <laughs> MCU 
or if Marvel TV is officially different than MCU, uh, are these the two great properties coming together? How long until Captain Hugh Jackman Wolverine is in Star Trek? <laughs> Snicked. That's it. Not long. Let's hope. Um, yeah, that she mistakes the E N H Enoch for Rios here for a number of minutes speaks to him. He's uh, Rios late in the course to DS 12 and then activated the holograms and went to his quarters. He is able the ENH to identify Soji as someone named Jana and uh, Rafi shows him the Romulan drawing of the eight circles, which he identifies in an attempt to depict an octanary, a planetary system with eight component stars there's a rare one with seven, but it would seem nobody really past some ancient Romulan star atlases has seen one with eight. This conclave of eight, Rafi has previously mentioned, she thought it was people who had planned the Mars attack, but maybe it was the place where they planned the Mars attack, at least from what we as the viewer have seen. And then she kisses her favorite hologram. This scene has a return of the, uh, the, the, the visual metric of when the hologram is checking the database, their eyes glow, which mm -hmm. when that was introduced in Star Trek Picard all the way back in the first episode or two with the, with the uh, uh, archive help hologram, I know there were some people, and, and no, this isn't me throwing rocks at, you know, at dude bros or whatever. Again, but there's some people that are like, oh, holograms never did that before. Now, in part, you see the reason why, not just here. Here, it's kind of restated as a tool. It's also a handy way to just really say, oh, in case you weren't totally clear, this guy is the hologram version of the other guy. But if we're going to have these multiple Rioses, and in a little bit, we're going to have all five of them together and whatnot, it's just an, an incredibly easy way to make it clear, particularly since they're going for kind of a low-key take, special effects-wise. It's not, you know, kind of the the rainbow effect to have them you know wave in and wave out in terms of like these are holograms it's just it's a, it's a handy little convenient tool and might be a way to um perhaps debunk some things more on that in a bit pete let's go back to the cube where narissa is picking up the pieces of the attack on elnor uh, which was of course uh <laughs> further attacked by seven uh, she sees the evidence of Seven with the Fenris Ranger badge there, the 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 help button. Uh, we go to Seven and Elnor getting to the Queen Cell. Seven starts to power things up. She could explain more about the expositionally convenient Queen Cell, which I kind of like that it's like, mm -hmm. oh, we need this place to do this thing. But she's not going to talk about that because she needs to steal the cube. She can't do both, both explain why it's here in our in-universe answer and steal the cube itself. And she's going to go with action. And I really appreciate that as she does her bleeps and bloops. She has holographic controls to manipulate, which activate the cube. Centurion Tarrant reports to Nerissa. It appears the cube is regenerating. Um, she says they have to get rid of every Borg still head in, held in stasis immediately and they can jettison them into space in the most efficient manner. The surface of the ship then skitters with bug-like Borg activity, a really, really evocative image to end the act. On La Serena, quiet scene. Picard and Soji are having food, eggs, it seems. 
hmm, does she like eggs or is that part of her instructions? Pete, what comes next is so low-key from Patrick Stewart that I think it's worth just slowing down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Picard's saying for this thing where she says, you know, she says this thing that the other person can't relate to. Instead of him saying what I think most of us would say, which is, no, no, I can ima- I, I, I can understand. I do know what it's like because I kind of sort of have had a similar thing. Instead, he says he cannot understand, but he can imagine it. And it was, it, again, it's, it's just a couple of sentences here. Other writers might have just had him say, you know, response, I can imagine it. But instead, yeah. just this acknowledgement, you are right. I cannot understand the world from your perspective. But let me start to think through how I, how I could try. Just a really nice moment. This is a scene about projecting. And the key phrase for me is words to that effect. So asked if he loved Data and Data loved him and Sir Patrick just showing you exactly what he is as a performer, um, giving you, taking you through this, whether you've seen the next generation or not, awareness that Data was brave, he was curious, he was very gentle had a child's wisdom unclouded by habit or bias. And then he made them laugh except when he was trying to and not a laughing at type of situation that Picard loved him in his way. um, And that data's capacity for emotion was limited much like Picard's to the point where Soji is able to recognize either through reading the scene or through her instruction set that data did love Picard. And it's just so thoughtfully written. And like you said, you slow this down. We go from chaos on the Borg artifact to this very introspective scene about the relationship between Picard and a surrogate son. And I'll add to that. I know that, you know, again, I I, I hate to keep going outside the narrative to, address you know the grumpy people who watch this show with hate in their heart but one criticism that i know i saw online about a month ago that i thought was not unwarranted but also was one you know one that had not concerned me was as follows hey picard is so sad about data and you know we're sad about him as the audience but picard wasn't there playing cards every week they didn't he didn't have a you know, racquetball appointment with Data and things of that sort. He didn't, you know, he worked closely with him, but it was not captain and first officer. It wasn't him and his past with Beverly and things like that. Is the show milking it a little much? Again, not a concern of mine, but I think it's an interesting question to ask if asked honestly. And the notion here that Picard, by virtue of being at the top of the mountain, by virtue of being the captain of the ship, you know, he was having connections with people in his own way. There always needed to be that distance. He was the boss of everyone on the ship, even if they were stronger than him or had a faster uh, brain processing rate than him, et cetera, et cetera. There needed to be that distance of the leader. And I, I feel like, again, not that his relationship to the characters needed to be recontextualized for me in this series, but that's what this scene does. And it brings into alignment the way Picard acted and the way we feel for these characters and brings them together to say, oh, Picard feels the way we do, even though he hasn't shown it. 
And what I think that perspective of a misguided set doesn't seem to understand is the captain can't go and play cards with the crew every week. And yes, we see it happen at the end of the next generation. Why do we see that happen? Because that's the end of the show. That's the payoff instead of the every week situation and understanding a natural evolution of character and story over time. Speaking of story, Matt, let's bring in Raffi and Ian, the Scottish emergency engineering hologram. We got that one right. Uh, yeah, that certainly makes a ton of sense. Um, played for fan service, fan service slash I get the joke slash. I mean, there is the tradition. Pete Gene Roddenberry said it in uh, the Star Trek book he nominally co-wrote with that guy in the 60s. Um, you know, that there's this great tradition of Scottish engineers. So it, it, it's all perfectly in line. It's not just, you know, C-3PO's red arm to sell more toys and whatnot. It's, it's everything is working all together here. Um, he, uh, Ian, the, the, the engineer hollow, says that Rios is probably hiding from Soji. He's not quite sure why, even after checking the databases. Uh, hey, engineer hologram guy what are the odds of an octanary star system uh, existing naturally uh, i must confess pete i don't i understand the narrative need to ask him because rafi's little arc here is rafi rafi confirmed at the beginning of the episode rafi's suspicions confirmed at the beginning of the episode so rafi's not going to follow her gut and do do some detective work here an engineer knowing what the naturally occurring nature of star systems i, I know at a certain point it's all math it's maybe the teensiest little stretch, but I digress. Well, I, I think there's the hook and a potential larger story purpose for understanding that, that it would need to be built, that someone would have to move those stars. Who could do that? Why would they do it? Okay, to show off here and to say something really important like a warning. And I will say as a story, as a story um, function, for lack of a better word, this notion of a society so great that they're going to move around, you know, stars, that they're going to create this thing with the knowledge that's not going to be found this year, this lifetime, this decade, you know, a century, millennia, et cetera, but that the message is so important that eventually anybody who could possibly venture out to hear the message is going to be roughly in the same position in terms of evolution as they were, that they'll be able to go to this place, investigate it and get the message. Um, I know that the notion of, you know, killer robots, Cylons, Star Trek stole from Cylons in this episode. And, you know, again, fake nerd rage, but uh, there, there are familiar elements in this episode this particular notion of creating a star system to act as a beacon across hundreds of millennia, if not more. I mean, my goodness, what a beautiful story construction. In her quarters, Rafi, who is shaken, attempts to order wine from the replicator, which the emergency hospitality hologram reminds her and tells uh, she disabled alcohol service two days ago, even locking herself out of the override. But it knows that Rios could use somebody to talk to. And when he acquired La Serena, 
he selected the self-scan option, claimed it was an accident, but he never bothered to revert it. So Rios is laid over all of the five basic installs. I love here, too, how Santiago Cabrera uh, overacts as Mr. Hospitality. I mean, leaning in and leaning in again, it had me wonder, is that something that they were futzing around on set and then said, you know, all right, do that again, but really do it to the point where she trips over? Or did he improv that and that was the one take? It felt like it was the kind of thing that even a great writer like Chaban that you just wouldn't come up with. That it's something that's the actor's experience. It's it's on the day. It's I'm already a little in your space. I'm going to do it more, do it more. And, and it, it, it was one of those magic moments caught on camera. Rios's quarters are filled with mermaids as he fills himself with liquor. He opens a trunk to see a red command uniform and a looks like a hard case with uh, a not uh, was Enterprise E Constellation. No, that was. Uh, yeah, was it? Constellation was the orig- original Enterprise, right? Then we had Galaxy Class was the D. I forget what the Enterprise configuration was, but the, the ship on the back of the case looks a lot like that, even though they said the Ibn Majin was a freighter. It did kind of vaguely look like the Sovereign class, which is the Enterprise Sovereign. E. Yes. Yeah. Um, and bottom, I mean, I know outside of the Star Trek universe, a lot of these um, uh, drawn by, uh, you know, the, the core of Star Trek designers there. Uh, I know there's also some in-universe things like they made the ships look more sleek in order to be more battle ready. Uh, I think that's a neat in-universe answer after the fact but um point being pete maybe it was sovereign class maybe it maybe it wasn't i think ultimately it's it's part of that sleek post oh no the borg are coming we need to be ready to fight kind of design aesthetic um did you happen to notice and i think was this maybe this might have been the beyond trek podcast might have tweeted this either them or trek movie did you happen to notice that the way the rank pips were magnetic they were magnetic and they were on a piece of of metal did you happen to notice that they were roughly arranged as ensign lieutenant junior grade lieutenant lieutenant commander commander like that they were in the order he would have got them i did not it's it's at first i was like i don't see it and then when i went back and rewatched it was like i think some smart set decoration person has been like hey how would he put these ranks away hey he would put them in the order that he got them and it's it, it 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 gives it a very lived in universe kind of kind of feeling. There you go. Uh, but the photo there of him with an older man, both in their Starfleet uniforms, and a drawing that we see from the reverse angle of him and a woman who looks like Soji. Back to the cube we go. Indeed, the queen cell uh, seven is seeing a readout that shows about 50 XBs uh, present and thousands of Borg still in stasis. Uh, the drones are useless without the collective. She does think they, that they could be controlled locally. Elnor is all for that. Give us an army. Uh, but if seven takes control, it's assimilation again. Well, just assimilate them and release them, suggests Elnor. Oh, no, says Seven, she might not want to release them again. Uh, Pete, this the beginning of a little bit of story business uh, that we'll get into later on. But 
usually when the Borg return, they're not quite as scary as the last time they were there. And this is an episode that I think successfully takes the mythos and the legend and the fear of the Borg and says, do you want to go back to those scary times? And it's a club that it really effectively is starting to wield right here. It is that, you know, she might not even be able to break free of the power there. Raffi gathers all of the holograms, the five broken pieces of Rios in the study. The subject here, Captain Alonzo Vandermeer of the Ibn Majin, who took his life, but they can't quite remember why, leading to Rios having a breakdown of some sort, which led, led to his discharge, the events of which all of this classified by Starfleet. Back to sick bay we go. Agnes awakes, finding out that she has indeed neutralized the Viridium. Uh, she's totally no Talshiar agent. Uh, Picard then appropriately sternly, kind of going from concern of, oh, you're okay, let me give you an update on your medical situation, to very sternly saying that when they arrive at Deep Space 12, she will surrender herself to the authorities for murdering Bruce Maddox. Uh, I would say, Pete, a, a totally earned moment, seeing as how she murdered Bruce Maddox needs to pay for her crimes, it would seem. Um, but also a little bit of a story clock, particularly if we're not going to end up at Deep Space 12. Um, but why did she do this? Uh, we get what essentially is some, some narrative connecting the dots between things that we knew and a couple things that we had assumed. Um, we get mention of the mind meld and the tracker. Also, Agnes says that part of that message uh, was poison put into her, her head along with a psychic block that mm -hmm. prevented her from talking about it. She thinks about suicide every day now uh, and highlights, nonetheless, her perspective of the truth that the galaxy is on the edge of a singularity and crossing over to synthetic life hell. What's the tipping point? Soji arrives to say the tipping point is the arrival of Seb Cheneb, the destroyer. We talk all the time how some scripts suffer, particularly when you watch them, from the necessary explanation. You know, Matt will point out a line here, or a line there, and it helps out. And this is a scene that nails the aesthetic. Why didn't she tell anybody about this before? There was a psychic block in place. She's suicidal. She thinks about a way out, okay? In that, oh, mind melded with her without her consent, poured this in. This vision happened thousands of centuries ago because of the hubris like Maddox had. And the rock in a hard place that a character like Agnes Gerardi, who has looked her whole career and life to see somebody like Soji and now she gets everything she wished for and she wants nothing more to do with it. I think you highlight too, Pete, that this is, uh, though this scene does not end with kind of dun -da -da -da, big dramatic showdown, cut to commercial, cut to another scene. It is for Agnes, this big showdown where finally she gets to see this, uh, this synthetic creature here. And, and though I think maybe the episode doesn't milk every moment from it, uh, it's a natural cutting away point because it is this big moment for Agnes. So we go to Rios's quarters where Rafi gets him coffee while he listens in to your Bill mug. <laughs> yes. In the mug. I, I, I'm assuming I mentioned this on the previous time. The mug made the 
the appearance in an episode. I'm, I'm assuming I talked about this, but if I didn't, uh, I have the exact same mug that I got a number of years ago. I want to say maybe 10 plus years ago. Uh, I saw it because it looked vaguely like the mug Picard uses in Next Generation. And then when it was shown a couple episodes ago, I'm like, that is the mug. That's my Star Trek mug upstairs meant to emulate, but not be the exact copy. I since have gone on the deep dive to see the model and you can occasionally buy them on eBay, the, the actual, you know, 90s era Picard ones. But like, oh my goodness, my mug meant to be a Star Trek mug is now of a Star Trek mug. What a moment. What a world we live in, Pete. Um, even as Rios listens to Billy Holiday's Solitude on the Record Player. Time for some more info on Vandermeer, says Rafi. Oh, is that his Walkman that plays music? <laughs> lovely. Just, I mean, lovely moment. Lovely, funny little moment. Vandermeer was like a father to Rios. Called him Pops in his head. Almost slipped out a couple times. But who knew he'd turn out to be a cold-blooded murderer? Back to Gerardi and Soji. And Pete, what is about to happen in this scene, uh, it's, it's interesting the way it's edited. And I've said many times before, I wonder, when you have two scenes intercut, is it because both scenes were lacking in some way? Just needed a little bit more oomph or something. I almost have to wonder if the Agnes Soji scene that's about to unfold and the Rios uh, Rafi kind of greater backstory scene, albeit continuing from the earlier bit, but I wonder if maybe it was written this way. It just really plays off in such a lovely way. But let me focus on the Agnes Soji stuff here. We have Agnes so amazed to see this synthetic person giving these 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 basic human responses to what she does you know when she's hungry she she eats when she's sad she cries when she's thirsty she drinks she adds so she does she's got beauty marks three beauty marks there's even a mole on her chest but pete soji's question here is she a person is she a person like agnes uh let's cut away from that take us back to rios and uh and rafi the Ibn Majid was way out there in the Vite sector. They had picked up a tiny ship with a diplomatic mission of two people. They scanned them, seemed safe to come on board. They notified Starfleet of a first contact. The ambassador, beautiful flower, more on that later, and his young protege, Jana. And this notion that all seemed to be uh, all right. They had dinner with uh, Captain and First Officer, that's Vandermeer and Rios, respectively. Then a few hours later, Vandermeer killed them both, phasered them in cold blood. Uh, it was a black flag directive straight from Starfleet security. Uh, Vandermeer had been told if he did not follow those orders, the ship would have been destroyed, all hands lost. Uh, the deed done, Rios pushed back, and Vandermeer ended up uh, taking his own life with that same phaser, one can assume. Then Rios did the covering up, got rid of the bodies, the proof. Then he told the fleet that Vandermeer killed himself. Killed himself for no reason. Six months later, Rios was out, uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic dysphoria, uh, which Rafi just simply calls being broken. It's the same girl that showed up on the La Serena today and the other one the other synth had sketched he and Jana together 
when he was there on the Ibn Majin, and that's the photo we saw before. Here, this next moment is why I think perhaps this scene and the Agnes Soji scene were written to be intercut, because we go from the question, you know, looking at the picture, uh, the revelation that Jana and Beautiful Flower were since, who gave the kill order, cut to to, uh, Agnes and Soji, oh, wanted Soji dead, says Agnes, Agnes couldn't do that anymore. So again, kind of in this writerly way, where I think that you know, and I don't mean to say a TV writer is better than a novel writer or vice versa. I think a traditional TV script would be, who gave that order? I bet it was Commodore So. Cut to Soji and Agnes. Commodore So wanted Soji dead, too. Uh, but, but, yeah, Commodore just be O. clear, there's no Commodore So, it's Commodore O. <laughs> Sorry, Commodore O. Look at all these names here, plus I accidentally had written Roji, so I'm just, it's a lot of names in front of me. Throwing. Again, point being, a slightly heavier hand would be saying, you know, Commodore So. So there we go again. Commodore O, Commodore O, Commodore O. Who's, who's really on hitting... first? Who gave the order? <laughs> Indeed. I don't oh, know who's on third. Oh, who? Oh, I know. <laughs> so, uh, gee, somebody... so did I. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, need, yeah, somebody needs to write that and make that. But again, just the point being, I, for better or worse, because there's definitely a, there's a lower key thrust to the revelation here, but this notion of, who gave the kill order, cut to something else. Uh, oh, wanted Soji dead because of that other kill order as well. It just really plays nicely uh, together. And with all that intercutting done, Pete, we head back to the Borg cube. Tell us about Nerissa's mission. Uh, she guns down every XB in sight to the point where the disruptor fails. She needs a new one. Um, and then Elnor notes that the lights on the hologram denoting XBs are being extinguished at a rapid pace. Narissa is then noting to the Centaurian Tarrant that something worse is coming, and Seven hooks in as Narissa blows the Borg into space. And what I think is truly astonishing in this scene is... We have the Borg so clearly established as the greatest Star Trek enemy ever. So scary. You know, you can't understand their perspective the way maybe you could say, all right, well, Vulcans do it this way. And I I think emotions are good, but I see where they're coming from and things like that. These great, you know, black clad villains that are always bad in the Borg. And how are they being treated in this scene? not only are they being kind of gunned down and vacuumed out to space and whatnot. I mean, this is evocative of you know, cleaning out a concentration camp before the allies can, can liberate it in world war two, just the way, you know, the way these poor captured souls are just having their lives thrown away. The show is not overdoing a kind of Nazi imagery here, but insofar as maybe the Nazi behavior speaks to a darkness in humanity in the way, you know, in, in the places we can go, we see that too here in this scene where it's just this moment of all these little bodies being sucked out into space and, and the, the, the volume of it all. And you can only feel sympathy for these great villains, these once great villains. Now you're sympathetic for them as, as, you know, as a stand in for people. And this being the thing that motivates seven to reassimilate them. So it's not her, unarbitrarily 
you know, taming their will, but this is out of a need to save lives. Back to La Serena, Agnes is brought uh, out of sick bay into the common area, ready to atone for her crimes. She apologizes to everyone, to her fam—I mean, crew. Um, I thought she was going to say family. Pete, I think she meant family in her heart. Uh, Rio says to Soji that he's sorry as well. He gets her peppermint ice cream and french fries. He just knows that's what she would like. We know it's because of the experience with Jana. Um, We then have Pete. I'm not quite sure why there is the expositional recap for things that we've learned in this episode, but darn if it doesn't work. Rafi Mm -hmm. explains the Conclave of Eight, warning about synthetic life forms, crossing the synthetic threshold, uh, that the Jatvash showed up once that line was crossed, just as people show up when you break the warp barrier. Nice in-universe metaphor there. We also, Pete, get the revelation that O is half Romulan, half Vulcan. Finally, I'm right about a mid-to-major theory. (laughs) As well as the disclosure that uh, it was nine years ago that they made contacts with these two emissaries from a strange new world. Love the the thing there. They did. Okay. Not just beautiful flower, but then flower. So we've said the name in part three times now. We're definitely going to talk about that, Matt. Yeah. I'm not even going to hint at what, the answer is because you're the one that uh, you're the one that made me aware of it, and it is so good and so perfect. That I can't wait to get there. But for now, um, we have that recap of Ivan Majid's first contact, uh, and worst of all, the homeworld uh, location has been revealed from Soji uh, to the Romulans. So everything falling apart here. Soji storms off. By the time they catch up with her, she's commandeered the bridge area, force field up. All the hollows have been turned off, and uh, Soji's ready to hop on a Borg Transwarp conduit, which, Pete, I have to admit, because I hadn't kind of watched all of Voyager until the last couple of years, um, much of my familiarity with the Borg Transwarp conduits uh, is with Star Trek Online, which Pete and other people who can hear my voice, if you haven't played Star Trek Online before, and you're going to be spending extra time at home in the coming days or weeks check out star trek online it's a ton of fun it reached a point where i was like okay i had my fun i don't need to play anymore i'm not interested in the latest romulan expansion pack or whatever it was uh my experience was free i had a ton of fun i didn't need to lay out money to get extra dilithium crystals or junk like that and i've spent a ton of time using transwarp uh conduits to get from hither and yon in my little ship there's some interesting reasons why she might be accessing these transwarp conduits as well beyond the voyager connection uh though pete we still are mid-scene here where where she's on the one side of the bridge and the others are not rio starts to uh, sing a spanish lullaby it's his backdoor into uh, commandeering the system away from her so with hand wipe the hog uh the uh, force field goes down picard suggests that maybe it's time to do things Soji's way, since we've tried it other ways and it hasn't worked. He sits down, triumphant moment, hands up on the hollow system, uh, but he doesn't know how to work this. Uh, Rios <laughs> then takes the captain's chair and uh, notes that Soji was all set to go here, wasn't 
accounting for gravimetric shear and things of that sort. So though she knew how to get from A to B to C, we do need the steady hand of Captain Rios. And what does it do? It establishes reason for the characters. The characterization is high. Love that you get Picard once looking at the chair and hesitating, now going into it, unable to make do. He needs people around him. And really, that's what this episode underscores, is people needing people. Uh, the ship warps towards the node. We head back to the cube where Nerissa is told that the fleet, the Romulan fleet, is headed to the synth homeworld. Uh, and her ship is almost ready. And this is being told by by her, her helper guy there who simultaneously, like, we see him get taken by the mass of XBs, but I don't think that it's readily clear that these are XBs, which is in line with kind mm. of the secret assassin style it all happens very quickly, and then all of a sudden she's fighting them, and then they're all on top of her. It's it's really a well-done scene, even though there are moments of confusion. My point being, I think it is all intentional. From the moment we were shown the Borg artifact, you knew that a scene like this was coming. And this Romulan exodus, boy, they haven't done enough of that in the last 18, 15, however many years. Uh, warping away from this uh, escalating situation. Uh, really, really an effective metaphor. Uh, good news. She gets to beam out just in time. I was legitimately convinced we were going to get the overhead shot and then the crowd means that you don't see her anymore. And then, right. you know, guy Peace. in makeup <laughs> reaches for the hidden blood pack and all of a sudden there's, you know, fake blood and fake guts coming up the show is better served to have nerissa live uh by implication she beams to her ship we see a ship then warp away by implication she's on it seven back uh still in the queen cell says the cube is ours now uh but annika still has work to do and uh seven is removed from the collective so good news pete she was able to look into the darkness embrace the darkness and then still push it away. So we still have our heroic seven of nine uh, at play in the story. I guess it occurs to me uh, potentially at play for as soon as next week. Uh, I of course have not seen the preview, so maybe that's common knowledge, but not to me. I live in the unspoiled belt of all potential futures. To the bridge of La Serena as they move through the conduit here and Picard talking about having been an officer on the Reliant and thinking that he was the only one in all that emptiness. Yeah, really great little monologue here, loving that emptiness and silence. Uh, he and Rios talk about Captain Marta Bentonidis. Pete, that's a character who's a deep cut from TNG. She was there uh, when Picard got the old knifey knife through the chest back as a lad. Um, she's a character seen on Memory Alpha wearing the uh, red um, Wrath of Khan style uniforms. So there you go. A real character made by people or you know, referenced by people who allegedly have never seen Star Trek before. <laughs> but this Captain Vandermeer and... Rios and Picard here, somebody he clearly respects and having lost a father figure, having gained a grandfatherly figure. Um, 
and some great kind of character background here leading to this uh this wonderful speech here uh you know, did Starfleet let down Vandermeer? Picard says yes. Starfleet betrayed him, be, betrayed himself. Uh, a trap had been set by the Jatvash, but Starfleet could have sidestepped it. Nonetheless, they gave into fear. Um, I think very fairly, uh, Rios mentions, yeah, but Soji did hack the ship in five minutes. There could be a planet of them that we're headed to. Shouldn't that be feared? And then we get, I mean, Pete, if Michael Chabon's going to write a better picard dialogue scene you know picard the character if he's going to write better than this i don't know how it's going to get much better he says the past was written the future is left for us to write and we have powerful tools openness optimism the spirit of curiosity all they have is uh secrets and fear and fear is the great destroyer i mean there you go there's there's star trek picard in what 10 lines of dialogue did they have a crystal ball um, they did not have a crystal ball. If they did, they would be, um, the Wicked Witch of the West or the, uh, guy in the beginning of the Wizard of Oz. Well, Matt, Soji gets up and does her thing. And of course, to find her way, we're going to take the compass from the previous episode out to find true North. Then one of the. One of the greater endings of a Star Trek episode, if I may be so bold. Uh, the music, the cinematography, the special effects all tell us, you know, the episode is, la- is late in its run here, but we're going to dive on into the next great adventure. The music swelling with exploration, swelling with this hopeful note to take it next week. Boom, it goes through. Then we get in the music a balance of terror as a Romulan ship decloaks and follows them in to shockingly end the episode. Pete, incoming threat analysis. It's like it happens every week. First one up, Commodore O, the master of this grand plan. Half Romulan, half Vulcan. Although I think we've got to put an asterisk on that. We're not getting it from a non-biased source in uh, in our crew here. Uh, so... Like I said, from story standpoint, we can repeat it. Um, I mean, until she says twirling mustache metaphorically, I am full-blooded Vulcan uh, who joined the Romulans to prevent this threat. But what does it do? It establishes the Jat Vash conspiracy larger than even just Romulans. So the first time we've heard of half Romulan, half Vulcan uh, activity brings back the whole unification uh, storyline, which Picard had more than a little bit of a hand in, as well as the late great Spock, Leonard Nimoy, um, and of course, Sarek. So a lot of connections here. To me, you know, again, looking at this, looking at the fact that there's only two episodes left and it's a two-part season finale, I would be surprised if somebody says, well, actually, that was a false thing imprinted because of the secret Vulcan conspiracy, which is working with the Romulans. Uh, I, I hear your concern. I agree with your concern. 
I don't know that it gives a lot of narrative wiggle room relative to what's left of the season, but certainly it could be a, a thread that's tugged at. Uh, let's move to uh, Colonel Narissa, referred to, uh, at least to my ears, my, my rounded ears, uh, referred to for the first time as a colonel here, but certainly somebody very, very capable, somebody who makes that tough call look easy as you know it's time to shut down the Borg Cube operations and move on to the actual meat of it all, which is to go get that synth planet. A fully formed character now, given the flashback at the beginning of this episode, We've seen her withstand the admonishment. We've seen her working in Starfleet. We've seen her doing seemingly inappropriate things about her brother. And now the uh, angle of Rhonda as her auntie, um, whether or not that's literal with what happened to her parents or uh, Rhonda with the Romulan head ridges as a northerner just taking these children into her care um but fully dynamic now and badder than ever we also get more information on the jat vash and i think it's it's information that answers a lot of the questions that we were meant to be asking uh at the beginning of the series this idea of a group that's so powerful that they can do things worse than the tal shiar but so secret that Tal Shiar agents aren't sure if the Jat Vash is real and they've been around so long that they're that they're, you know, ancient memory as opposed to, you know, kind of this, you know, warp and phaser and exploration uh stuff that seems to be in the last, you know, several hundred years for these civilizations, maybe, you know, not much past that. Um, the notion that it is kind of this sleeper cell that received this message uh a long time ago and has intentionally been on the, you know, been quiet because there hasn't been this threat, but that they've been prepared to act and prepared to bring more people in with the very evidence that got the group uh, formed in the beginning. To me, that answers every single question I didn't know I had. I feel like I have a few more just in terms of the time frame. So it seems, and again, going on the sources of information we have in the past. So for Laris to tell us early on and to expose us in the second episode to this concept of Jat Vash, uh, about a secret that they've been protecting, one that they loathe for thousands upon thousands of years. And then it was two to 3000 years in Rafi's estimation, um, 14 years ago prior to, the uh, attack on Mars. So clearly this precipitated at, um, I, I just think we we're going to have to have a scene in one of these last two episodes that lays out a to B to C because these visions as uh, evocative as they are, it's still not quite clear. We've been told in the previous episode, there is a, uh, a potential death toll of trillions and it's got to be prevented. It would seem to make the Jat Vash sympathetic in this light. Not that they are villains. They're again, trying to prevent this second coming. Well, I think they're sympathetic in so far as we now understand their motivations and the stakes are real enough, but I think, I think if we then add to it 
Picard's speech and the perspective of the, the perspective of at a certain point we need to go beyond those basic fears and we need to move forward with optimism with safeguards perhaps but with optimism um that's a very very star trek message and i think that in these complex times of the now or the the 1960s when star trek was conceived it's not always easy to say and hand wave everybody's cool now and everybody gets along right like the path to get to the star trek times is not clear to us just as i think the path to get back to the halcyon days of the beginning of next generation when ships were big and wide and looked like dentist office and had families. And how do we get back to that Starfleet to that easy Federation that didn't know uh, the Romulans because nobody had seen them in decades and decades that didn't know of a Borg that didn't know of the dominion that kind of just everything was fine. How do we get back there? Well, I think Picard's answer is I don't know, but let's start with living our principles, not violating them. Yeah. When we look at Centaurian Terran, like we've seen for a couple episodes here, to fully get his name, his rank for the first time, and then to have him participate in the events of this episode before the XBs conceivably took him out, long overdue. Yeah, I mean, good use of a supporting character, and I think doubly in this episode, not that it was like, oh man, I need more of the Centurion, but he was that person that she could give orders to, that she could have the conversation with so it wasn't a monologue in her head. Um, he's the actual button pusher, you know, getting these uh, these Borgs sucked out into space and whatnot, and just really helps uh, helps grow the world. Pete largely absent from the episode, certainly absent uh, in terms of the actor, is Narek, who, surprise, surprise, has been following all along, um, following all along in that cloaked Romulan ship that I must confess, it, at the very end of the episode, it was like, oh, right, duh, their ship's cloak. Uh, in the pace of the episode, Pete, I had not considered that might be a thing. Yeah, it's almost as if with our Millennium Falcon through the old wormhole there that Boba Fett's slave one needs to show up and just remind us there's a threat. Pete, let's set those sensors far afield. Talk some theories here. Um, many people speculating online that this ancient civilization must be the Iconians because that's an ancient civilization that got mentioned in Star Trek before. Um, I guess on the one hand, could be. I mean, I know the Iconians had some pretty amazing uh, power, you know, considered demons of air and darkness, what with their advanced transporter technology, that I guess could also suggest uh, the ability to move around suns to create this uh this grief planet and whatnot but must it be the iconians because i read a thing in the star trek encyclopedia back in the day or do we need to have them named or where do you land it it doesn't need to be that nor does it need to be the civilization that built the dyson sphere to contain a star um i read it again i just think we're headed to an intersection of the Borg and the Romulans. I guess. I mean, obviously time will tell. I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I love the idea of a Borg Romulan team up or something like that. Although 
I think Riff. one begat the other. I think the Romulans messed around that their experiments in AI led to the Borg. Okay, uh, we're not going to admit this, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to prevent more of it. That would be fun. I wonder, you know, like in the writer's room, is there ever the discussion, hey, we don't want to go back and rewrite. We don't want to go back and do secret history of stuff that people take as gospel because heaven knows uh, or Great Bird of the Galaxy knows that Star Trek fans sometimes can take, you know, take take Star Trek as gospel truth. But, you know, that would be an interesting twist uh, for, for the show to take. Uh, what else is on your sensor suite there, Pete? We had a Viridium patch used by Spock to track Kirk when he was put on trial by the Klingon Empire in Undiscovered Country here. Uh, at least in the previous episode, the substance now named for um, the tracker that uh, Agnes Gerardi was made to swallow. That's a great, great connection there. And if it's a little hand wavy to say, wait, how could she be tracked over these great distances and it's such a small thing? You know, if it's been shown once before, you kind of, you know... Either you complained about it in Star Trek VI the first time you saw it, or you didn't. Regardless, it uh, it worked then and it works now. So the next two are really the meat of this segment. So if you're not already sitting down, you should be. Pete, I am in my command chair. I am ready to listen. So let's talk name origin for a moment here. For instance, my name is Peter, and though it is spelled uh, in the Dutch tradition P-I-E-T-E-R, the I is silent, Peter comes from uh, St. Peter. Uh, Peter means rock. Uh, Christ told St. Peter, the first pope, upon this rock, I build my church. Matthew has some name importance, name uh, symbolism. Gift, gift of God, I will say yes. <laughs> Indeed. Certainly a gift to this podcast and, and to our audience. Um, do you know what? beautiful flower is uh what name beautiful flower or specifically flower um translates to well pete i only know because you told me and then you told me a couple days ago and i was like oh wow that's amazing and you know things have been crazy lately uh in preparation for the podcast i was like really and i typed that name into the old google i typed the name you're about to reveal i typed in you know the name the name origin and it came back as flower and i was not surprised but i was still amazed which is why i'm glad i'm still in my handy seat here the name is lore the notion the possibility that we are going to get to a planet of uh of of you know soji's uh, Janas, whatever name you want to assign them, then a planet of young Laura lookalikes. Do they put out the money to de-age Brent Spiner to turn him into a twenty-year-old version of himself? You know, I wouldn't put it outside the realm of possibility. Maybe nothing appears on screen, and it's meant to be this little breadcrumb, or we don't want to call it lore. Uh, maybe we get old lore. I don't know, but I feel like Pete. Now that you've now that you've done that bit of detective work there. I'm even more excited for the forthcoming uh, two-episode finale. The next, less so, but certainly is going to resonate in our uh, next segment where we've gotten some confirmation 
or not confirmation. I'll leave it at that. Um, but holograms, particularly in this episode, we get all five of them. We get the disclosure that um, when Rios acquired La Serena, he selected the self-scan option, claimed it was an accident, never bothered to revert it. We see all the holograms in this episode trill their eyes um, when they're accessing information. You mentioned previously the uh, hologram in the first episode at Starfleet Archives. But one way to identify somebody's a hologram. Yeah, and I mean, I guess a couple of thoughts. First of all, if the only bit of hologram story business done uh, from this episode to the end of the season was the ability to get all five of them in the same, not just same scene, frequently in the same shots. There was one camera angle where I was clear with how they cut it, that it was Santiago Cabrera seated uh, as the tactical guy, and then one of the other ones sitting next to him, and you didn't see his face. So that's clearly the photo double. Frequently, you had multiple ones in the same shot. Pete, shots that looked handheld. Um, I don't know if that was done after the fact, or I, I, I don't know how that was done. It's probably certainly easier than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and so forth. But there was such a fluidity to that scene, and we are we have all seen secret twin, secret split split screen, you know, stuff all the way back to lore and before that, soap operas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The the fluidity of a handheld moving camera, not moving in some sort of you know snazzy uh, you know camera move here, but just moving a little bit. It just freed this scene, and it was absolutely wonderful. Then I suppose there's other. There are other things to be laid on top. You're probably talking about my beloved theory that uh, that Rios is a hologram. Still could be, although you know when we get to the to the feedback segment in a little bit, I'm also maybe prepared to back off that a little bit. Um, but a great, just great fun stuff in this episode. Does the possibility exist? So we know that Rios's story follows thusly. Uh, has a mentor figure. The the mentor turns out to make a, a horrifying uh, decision, almost instantly regrets it, takes his life. Rios covers it up. He leaves Starfleet, suffers this post-traumatic dysphoria. Matt, could he have gotten La Serena, scanned himself in, then, like vandermeer taken his life and there are really six holograms aboard la serena if it will be revealed that rios is a hologram i think that is the best answer um and that gives us an unspooling point with which we can say oh that's why he never undid it because the the captain rios hologram can't undo it or whatever it might be you know it could be one of these computer rules just as for some reason mr hospitality can't remember the temperature for tea he just can't you can tell him and he won't remember it that's just that's the nature of that computer program uh perhaps so too this can't be undone i mean my goodness we have in this episode pete a wine prevention order that can't be undone even with the undo or the meta undo so i guess it is possible to lock 
yourself out of the system and throw away the key. Again, I return to story pacing. We have two episodes left, jam-packed space where things can be happening and, and whatnot. Is there time for that? I mean, from this point, we've had two episodes in a row of 50 minutes plus. There may be a plenty of time to do just that. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Pete, first thing up here is something that we talked a little bit about on Twitter. So we got an email, and step one, the email uh, sender asked that we not read from it verbatim. So there's been a little summarization here on my part. Um, And let me take you through this summary, and then we'll take things from there. So it's a listener who has been enjoying all our Star Trek coverage. Uh, They've spent time around the production of this show. They've particularly enjoyed us kicking around the theory that Rios is a hologram, and they're not saying what the truth is one way or the other. That said, people from or around the production apparently periodically have fake script pages that get put out in the world, in the wild, to discredit some of the louder anti-Star Trek voices. Uh, This trap worked, leading to a video being made by one of those anti-Trek folks, Uh, where she reads from the alleged season finale script and definitively, uh, according to this email, definitively that script page that supposedly was leaked, supposedly was discussed on YouTube, etc., that script page is a fake. Yes, and additionally, I have reached out to a member of the current production. I can't use a name. I can give you on deep background merely a member of the current production that that page page 39 there's also a page 38 matt and i've seen both of them um it is not from picard it's assuming i mean it seems pete we're you know we're we're on the same page no pun intended about about a there being this script page floating around and b it not being not being truly from the show it's interesting to ponder you know, is this how they're responding to, you know, some of those outsized voices that are there? I mean, let's just face it. Some of those people are on YouTube just to get clicks, just to get some money, just to tear down. They're loyally watching week after week. They're just turning it into a hateful product. And this is certainly, if nothing else, it's a novel way for the product to push back a little bit, to, to kind of put poison in the in the well. If you, If I guess you know where to put this fake stuff that might be picked up as real i mean listen these anti-voices have been exposed increasingly a couple weeks ago somebody completely trolled them through 4chan and acrostically spelled out a message in what they parroted out to the point where they're all gun shy in this video purporting that this is a page from the production. Well, this is rumor, but we're reporting it as, as rumor. So if it's real, ha ha. And if it's not ha ha, like you can't have it every way. Okay. They're so thirsty for content to hate on the show and keep somehow watching the show, I truly don't understand it. They should just go away and podcast or they don't even podcast, uh, you know, turn on a camera and rant in front of the camera and put it on YouTube and then beg YouTube to monetize it for things they care about and love, not the things they don't like. Uh, but definitively this page and the other page, 
uh, watermarked CBS All Access 2019. They are not real. Well, so I guess, uh, Pete, it kind of mirrors what we've been saying. I don't know whether it was last week or the week before. I think it was last week where it was like, let's let's be careful with whether it's good rumors, bad rumors, whatever it is. Let's just be careful in what we are sharing. Let's not immediately share that hot take video or that hot take post or whatever. Kind of know your sources. I, If nothing else, I think you and I both, we, we could have led with this news. Oh, we have this thing. And it kind of was like, we sound we feel like this is credible but is this how we want to open the podcast no we're gonna open the podcast talking you know talking about concerns of the day in the last week for all of us for all listening and then let's get into some star trek then we'll dive on into it not you know not i don't know not turn the whole hullabaloo into into something more so let's move on to an email from uh derg that's uh derg at reviews by derg.com uh who says in two emails as follows pete Uh, Hi, Matt and Pete. Excellent podcast again this past week. Here are my quick thoughts on Picard Episode 8. Great hour of Trek. Well-planned backstories for Rios and Dr. Gerardi fully revealed here. Especially Rios's was quite intriguing, including just the right amount of humor with Rafi trying to uncover the vague information fed to her by the five hologram Rios's and failing miserably. My daughter and I chuckled throughout the scene. Seven not going full, uh, not going Borg full tilt was a great choice by the writers. I have to confess I was worried they would go, uh, they would go that route, but they did not. Thankfully, fascinating mythology to Jat Vash and the discovery of the artifact left for them, containing the signal of what the synths did uh, years ago. Picard hands it to Clancy this time, and I am standing, clapping JL with tears rolling down my cheeks. Although I complained a bit at the time that the story was developing too slowly through episodes 2, 3, and 4, I see now that the writer's decision to weave an intricate backstory and complex characters required some breathing room and pays off narrative-wise in the second half of the season. All these cumulatively add up to the best episode of the season so far. Can't wait to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. Uh, Pete, he apologizes for the lengthy message. I say no apology needed. No. he then, a couple minutes later, sent a follow-up. So here we go. Supplementary question slash point of discussion. Wasn't it a bit odd, or even dangerous, for Picard to leave Gerardi alone in the room with Soji? I know that Soji can take care of herself. Uh, can she ever? Ha. But still, Gerardi may have blown the room up or something, and Picard was fully aware of what Gerardi's intentions had been by then. Pete, that from Derg. Let's start there. I think it's a great question. I think it's a fair question. It is, I, but I, I think it speaks too to the the builder that Picard is as far as teams and, and crews are concerned. He's vetted the threat himself. Yes, should he have let um, Rafi vet uh, Gerardi prior to her boarding La Serena would have been a good idea might have Bruce Maddox still alive, but that's not the way the story was going to go. So um, he can tell through her remorse. This is a Picard who is far more in touch with his feelings and his gut than that of the next generation. Pete, you mentioned Admiral Picard being a man in touch with his feelings, a man in command. Well, if that doesn't also capture the other Admiral, I'm talking about Admiral Fred. I don't know what does, so let's hear from the Admiral himself. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. 
This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Picard Season 1 Episode 8. Actually, I should be preparing to go to Amsterdam instead of recording this audio feedback. Because I had a William Shatner theater show in Amsterdam. So watching the film Wrath of Khan and then afterwards have a Q&A with William Shatner. As Pete also did. But of course of the coronavirus crisis this all was cancelled. But it was very tricky last week. Because my employer, being a university hospital, strongly advised their personnel not to go to any meetings with more than 30 people. And I would have gone to that with my 16-year-old son. But he refused to go with his mother. So he said, I go with dad or I don't go at all. So I had two tickets, what to do with it. Ever VIP tickets, $180 each. But then, fortunately, our government decided to prohibit any meetings of more than 100 people. So all theater shows and also this show had to be cancelled. So now the show is postponed. It will happen somewhere in the future or I will get my money back. Yeah, it was a very rough week last week. One of the other reasons I really couldn't go to William Shatner with this advice is because I'm one of the members of the crisis team around coronavirus and education. And we had to shut down every lecture and every education in the medical faculty. And just one day later the whole university did the same. Okay, about episode 8. I first thought it wasn't that good and a little bit a as we had one before blah blah episode as i call it with a lot of exposition and a lot of talking so originally i wanted to give this episode a six but because of the very nice discussion picard and soji had over this meal very well acted by both of them by the way That made it much better and I really liked the Borg Queen sequence of Seven of Nine. So these two things really boosted it up and I would give it now a seven and a half or something like that out of ten. I also liked the acting of Peyton List who plays Nerissa in her monologue to the unconscious aunt Ramda. Very nice acting, very nice close-ups. Also the discussion between Rafi and Enoch, Enoch, uh, the E-N-H, the navigational hologram, was of course very nice. And he being completely out of his, or in his element, after she kissed him. And which uh, cannot be denied, which is very, very nice, is of course the scene with the five holograms together. So that is good for my orphan black heart and it was uh, a special treat when they had to look something up and they all hit their head at the same time searching, searching information. Of course the scene of Picard with Clancy was also very good. Perhaps summarizing all these very good scenes should put up my grade even more than 7.5. Time's up. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, having experienced that Shatner show of watching uh, the the extra footage edition of Wrath of Khan and hearing him talk about 
uh, Star Trek and his life and whatnot afterwards. Uh, I feel so badly that Fred has been forced to miss that. I guess the good news is everybody's been forced to miss that. So hopefully the rescheduled date is one that works for him and his son. Yeah, Europe now becoming the epicenter of this coronavirus outbreak. We certainly hope that Fred and everybody is staying healthy and, again, following the uh, the public health guidelines. So if it's meant to happen down the road, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Shatner will make good on it. Goodness knows if somebody's paying William Shatner's rate uh, and there's not a crisis, he will show up to get that money. Um, Fred pointed out the exposition in this episode it's funny after after spending the time between watching episode 107 and podcasting 107 it's like all right i want to share these thoughts about some some negative thoughts i have about the episode but i don't want to sound like a debbie downer um i don't know if maybe my exposition sensors were burned out uh i would i would disagree i know where the exposition occurs in this episode but i thought that all of it was handled in a much more masterful way than last week's episode. Uh, but even regardless, Fred praising the performances, uh, even down to Nerissa's monologue. Yeah. I have to wonder with Peyton list on this show and she's not been as uh, billed as our regulars. Uh, she's not a member of the crew quote unquote, but you know, in the in the little time she's been on the show, she's definitely made a, a mark. This her biggest episode to date. Well, and you figure too. I mean, she's. I know that she had. You know, Narissa has the boss in Commodore O, but Peyton List is playing the biggest baddie that the show has had. Meanwhile, how many scenes has Peyton List had with most of the core people in this show? Nada, which is kind of weird. Like the the baddies over there. She's in her own show called Star Trek Narissa. And everybody else is in Star Trek Picard, and occasionally they get edited together, or occasionally there's a crossover where, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Del Arco work on the same black painted set and say, hello, old friend. And then, you know, Patrick Stewart goes away and goes somewhere else, and then Peyton List shows up the next day and goes, pew, pew, I'm going to get you. But it's kind of two separate storylines. And the episode uh, earning a retroactive grade from uh, Fred almost approaching an octanary star out yes he he's at the 7.5 he's wondering if he needs to round it up you know is fred at the center of his own eight star system i don't know i mean we'll see what next week's episode brings pete i think this this needs to be a new thing for fred where he gives he gives a number of stars and not kind of in the (laughs) you know on your paper i draw a five-pointed thing like it's actually i want fred to be in his mind, at the very least, taking stars from the sky and putting them together in a circle to say, you have earned X number of Fred stars, you know. Uh, so so I guess time will tell. We have these two episodes left. Well, you talk about stars, Matt. We have a constellation in the people who contribute to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. That we do. People who support us, make sure that that back catalog stays up for your enjoyment and your entertainment and all our future endeavors uh, are uh, are able to be lined up, uploaded, streamed, etc. Especially Pete, I've been looking at this document that I put up on January 1st where we had Runaways and Mandalorian and Godfriend and Me and Picard too, and now we're getting to the end of the 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 uh, the list that was printed out. Then looking ahead to things, you know, going to be previewing some 
Falcon and the Winter Soldier, some WandaVision, some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, who knows even if those Star shows... Star Trek Discovery. Star Trek Discovery, you know, do some of those dates get changed? But I know that on Patreon, A, the people who support us there are keeping all that going, and B, we we have some recent goodies up. We have some more goodies coming, particularly since it seems like we're going to be in our respective homes a bit more than not. So goodies ahead there as well. That uh, That is our little way of saying thanks. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. You pick your goodies from there. Just takes a dollar a month to get you in that door. Can't quite contribute this month and certainly understand in the wake of the worldwide crisis how that might be the case. You can find yourself a little bit more time. You head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Takes seconds. You give us the eight-star rating. Uh, Even better, helps spread the word about fantastic geek pete we love the interaction with people talking about these shows how can people be in touch with you on twitter you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 11,266 followers can't be wrong and while i am personally on twitter is looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter instagram gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait pete there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek all one word with the p with the h like it today well pete looking ahead to our schedule here got some godfriended me coming your way on monday then of course back for the penultimate season one episode of picard this time next week at least when we podcast it and then pete you know two episodes left after that one episode left can't believe that we're about to put Picard in the rearview mirror that just means that there's more Star Trek adventures ahead for now though I will say adios to all the listeners and give you Pete the final word I mean it's not even language <laughs> <laughs>